Okay, let's get started. Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I am the president here of the RTS Washington campus, and I also teach Old Testament here. And I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, Associate Professor of Old Testament and Dean of Students here at RTS. Hey, Peter. Hey, Scott. Good to be with you. Great to have you. I'm also joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, Associate Professor of New Testament and Academic Dean here at RTS. Hey, Tommy. All right. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it as well. Um, we are also joined by uh, Dr. Um, Paul Jean, who is the senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in the Northern Virginia area and an instructor in New Testament here at RTSDC. Hey, Paul. Hey, Scott. Always good to be with you guys. And last but never least, we're joined by our man in Jakarta, Dr. Grace Utanto, assistant professor of systematic theology, newly minted, attended his first real faculty meeting as RTS faculty just this morning. Um, and we're thrilled to have you. Hey, Gray. Hey, Scott. Great to be here as always. And we have a special guest today, and I am thrilled to introduce to you uh, Dr. Julius Kim. And I am going to hand it over to Dr. Peter Lee to give a fuller introduction of Dr. Kim. All righty. Well, my fellow colleagues and, and also to our listeners out there, it's a real joy and a uh, and a real privilege, and I've been so excited for this night to be able to have my dear friend, uh, Julius Kim, join us. Julius and I have been friends for, for many, many years. Uh, we are, our paths haven't crossed nearly as much as we had wanted. Uh, he's been uh, more or less in Southern California where he's been actively serving in various different ways. Been here in Washington, DC. He knew me when I was a, a naive, young, uh, mindless, single guy abused me on my bachelor party and uh, just just lots of great memories and times and, it, and it's so exciting to uh, to be able to have uh, uh, Julius here with us tonight. The Lord has blessed him with so many gifts and he's been so busy serving and, and abundantly using them for the Lord. Julius earned his uh, Master of Divinity at uh, Westminster Seminary in California. After graduating from there, he moved on to do his doctoral work at the Trinity Divinity School, where I believe he studied under John Woodbridge and did some historical work uh, of the, um, the French Enlightenment, if I recall, at least generally within that area. He is also a very experienced minister of the gospel. He's ordained in the PCA, where he has served for many decades in, in the church with lots of pastoral experience. He also served for many years as a professor of practical theology at his alma mater at Westminster Seminary in California, where he also served as a dean of students. During that time, Julius published numerous articles for various different journals, and also was able to produce a monograph on preaching entitled Preaching the Whole Counsel of God, something that's actually now being translated in multiple different languages, I believe even in, in Hebrew, modern Hebrew, in, in certain areas of uh, in Israel, which is extraordinary. And of course, as uh, Dr. Red mentioned, uh, most recently now, he has begun a, a new ministry as a president uh, of the Gospel Coalition. Julius, I'm so excited. I'm so thankful that you took the time to be able to join us here this evening. Thank you for, for doing that and being with us here tonight. Thank you so much, Peter. It's my privilege and my pleasure to be with you all. One of the first questions that I'd like to ask is just uh, uh, maybe if you could share with us uh, uh, a little bit of your time at Westminster as a faculty member there. That had to have been such an honor. I mean, these were our teachers who are now inviting you to now be a colleague and and that alone was i had to have been such an honor I, I can't recall i think maybe dr Clowney was still there during your time for a brief for a brief moment and i know he had a huge impact on you and then maybe also the transition now to this new calling as the uh, president uh, of the uh, of the gospel coalition if you could share with us a little bit of how all of that happened yeah thanks peter as, as, as peter mentioned earlier he um he mentioned that after doing my MDiv, I went off to do my PhD at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Historical Theology. And I went to study with John Woodbridge, who was my mentor. And uh, it's basically studied in the 17th century, early modern English history. I started in France on the origins of the Enlightenment, questions regarding the origins of the Enlightenment, then went over and swam the channel. It's much easier to work with English primary sources than French primary sources. Uh, so I went out on that and uh, did that doctoral work. And the whole goal was actually to go potentially overseas as a missionary teacher. 
uh, at that time, my wife and I had tremendous burden to be part of a church planting and leadership training uh, movement in, in countries that just didn't have the kind of educational resources that we have here, let's say in North America. And so we continue to pray and, and, dis- and to discern God's call regarding that possibility. And then as I was working on my dissertation and teaching part-time at Trinity, I got a call actually from Ed Clowney, who was still teaching part-time in his kind of third retirement at Westminster, California, and invited me to apply for a position that had opened up. Surprisingly, it was not in church history, which I thought uh, I would be doing, but it was actually in practical theology. And um, I didn't know this at the time, but it was essentially it was because Ed was retiring for the last time and they were trying to find someone to replace Ed. And I only knew that after actually Ed passed away and I was talking with his wife, Jean, that it was Ed's desire and dream when I was a graduating student that I would somehow come back and, uh, and fill his, his very, very large shoes. Mm. Uh, for those of you who know Ed Clowney or know his legacy, just a tremendous pastor scholar. And uh, so it was a, was, a, was a father to me, a spiritual father to me, and was the one that even encouraged me when I was doing my MDiv to, to pursue even a, an academic career in theological education. That was, that was never my goal. I just wanted to be a pastor. And, and, um, but he thought that, I think he saw something in me and really encouraged me. And, and much of who I am and what I do is largely because of not only Ed Clowney's influence, but also the influence of uh, uh, other spiritually uh, wise and godly men like my father. And so that's kind of how that all started. So it came back to Westminster. Unfortunately, due to various circumstances, Ed actually left right when I arrived. The goal was for us to start team teaching together for me to learn from Ed, because I was only, I think, 32 at the time, scared out of my, my mind, thinking that I would be teaching at that early of an age. But uh, by God's grace, I started teaching there in practical theology and absolutely loved it. Uh, because for me, p- practical theology brought together all the various disciplines um, in a way that helped us bring wisdom to the, to the art and science of pastoral ministry. You have to know, you, you have to know exegesis, you have to know theology, you have to know the history of the church, and you, know, you, have, you need to know ethics and things like that in the, in the practice of the church, and especially uh, for preaching, which was an, an area of interest of mine. Much of, what I, much of what I read in the 17th century were actually sermons. Um, yeah, it just brought together a lot of loves, and though I wasn't sure what I was doing those first couple of years at the seminary, uh, I was able to teach there for, for 20 years. And so I was at Westminster, California for 20 years before making this transition to the Gospel Coalition. As for that transition, um, let me just say, first of all, it was absolutely unexpected. You know, I guess 20 years is one of those moments where you kind of self-reflect and take some inventory on your life and yourself. And, and I remember last summer, I was talking with my wife about the, the joys as well as the pains of 20 years of ministry at the seminary and was actually quite excited about the next 20 years and was ready and willing and able to spend the next 20 years in, in the same role, doing the same thing, and then tackling some new projects uh, along with Peter and our good friend, Joel Kim, who became the president of Westminster, California, and just really excited to see the next phase of uh, the life of Westminster, California with Joel a, a, as the president. And then I got a call um, from the search committee uh, that was looking for the president asking me to apply. And, and it was quite surprising. At, I think at first blush, there was, in my mind, there was no way I would take on this role for various reasons. Didn't think I was qualified. Didn't think I had the right gift mix. Uh, and also because I was really satisfied and content in being a professor at a seminary, training future pastors and leaders for the church, but also just happy with what I was doing at my, my, my local church as an associate pastor. So life was really good. My girls were, uh, one girl was already in college, one's about to go to college. So I thought, you know, this is, this is a good place to be. My girls are walking with the Lord and I don't want any changes in my life. And then uh, as I talk to those uh, people in my life that are helpful spiritually, my, my wife, of course, my father, my pastor, they all encouraged me to pray and apply because they, th- they thought that going through the application process and going through the process of, of, of interviewing, et cetera, helps, I think, clarify, would, would clarify for me, my gifting, my skills, my experiences, and where I can be most useful for God's kingdom. And it's not necessarily a guarantee that I would take this job, but it was, it was, it was just a process to help me uh, discern uh, where God would want me. And then 
as Providence would have it, as, as I went through that process, the burden for that ministry became, it began to grow. And just, it's a, it's a, it's a very unique ministry. As many of you know, it's a, it's an, it's a very impactful ministry. Uh, this year alone, we'll probably reach 40 million unique users on our website, uh, close to a hundred thousand page views on our articles. And so we have an, we have an enormous reach in spite of our very shoestring budget. And uh, God has blessed TGC over its last 15 years. And, and it was, I, I consider it an honor to be a part of this, this family uh, for the next generation. That's kind of how, how everything fell into place. Wow. Praise God. And I'll, I'll tell you, when I, when I heard and the word was out that uh, you were going to be uh, Don Carson's replacement, you know, I mean, I knew you and, and those who know you real well, uh, I'm sure all came to the same conclusion. This is a perfect fit. Um, hmm. Julius is so gifted. And, and if there's someone who can really take the reins and, and take the, uh, the ministry of the Gospel Coalition to a whole new stage, uh, you know, you're one of the few guys who really could do it. And so I rejoiced in the Lord with so many when I heard of that appointment and I thought, this is really a good choice and the gospel coalition is in good hands for, for many more years to come. Praise God for that. That's very kind. Thank you, Peter. Julius, you know, um, I think our listeners and even our faculty here probably are, uh, we're obviously familiar with the gospel coalition. They have, uh, they have made a, a, a significant impact on the evangelical church and, and within many Christian lives. I suspect that they might not be completely aware of the vision of uh, the Gospel Coalition. I was wondering if you could share a little bit of what that vision is and, and perhaps even, um, you know, what your uh, new uh, twist might be, if, if anything at all, uh, in terms of the direction that you'd like to take uh, the Gospel Coalition for the next uh, stage in, in their growth and development. Yeah, I appreciate that opportunity to share. It's my joy to do so. Uh, for, for those of you that are not as familiar with uh, the Gospel Coalition. It's essentially a, it's a fellowship of pastors and churches that, that work together uh, to support the church in producing gospel-centered resources uh, to, to renew the faith of individuals, but also reform the ministry of churches in the Reformed tradition. It's, it, it was started by Don Carson and Tim Keller, uh, two, uh, two great leaders uh, in this century that have just done so many profoundly helpful things for the gospel and for the church, not only here in North America, but worldwide. And uh, one of the things I find so encouraging about the Gospel Coalition, that is, it is that it's, it's, a, it's an amazing group of pastors and leaders. We have about 50 men on the council, and each in their own right, leaders uh, of their churches and ministries, and yet they're willing to humbly work together uh, for the sake of a larger cause, a, a gospel cause. And I think the Lord blesses that. I think the Lord blesses when people put away their pride and their own ministry and, and their pursuit of power and significance and say, hey, you know, there's, is there something we can do together for the sake of gospel-centered ministry in light of the challenges that we, we see today? And, uh, and obviously, it was led by such incredibly humble, godly, gifted men like Don and Tim. And so my, my job is I feel like I'm the I'm like Steve Kerr, right? The, the, the coach of the Golden State Warriors during its prime. You know, I'm like the head coach of all these all-stars. And I just say, there's the basket. Here's the ball. Go do your thing. And, uh, and hopefully I get a championship ring out of that, even though I don't really do anything. So that's kind of how I feel. There's wonderfully gifted, godly men who have so much to give to the church. And, and I have the honor of trying to drop some plays, right, for the next, next several years, hopefully. And and try to do something right with this motley crew. In terms of vision, yeah, I, th I think one of the things I've really been struggling with or just being challenged by, especially in this particular context is, you know, why TGC and why now, right? What do we even need an organization like TGC and why does TGC exist for such a time and place, right? And there's a lot of other parachurch organizations that provide gospel-centered resources. And so where, where, does, where does TGC fit in that space? And I, I, think, I think TGC, not only because of its unique coalition of pastors and churches, but also because of its singular mission and vision, namely this, we exist to support the church, period. That's really, really important for us as an organization. We do not supplant the church. We don't usurp the church. You don't undermine the church. We exist to support the church of Jesus Christ. And if the church of Jesus Christ is hindered or hurt by what we do, then we should not exist. 
So I think that's one of the first things that, that I want to try to continue to instill in the staff and writers and all those who are involved in the ministry that we exist to support the church. But we exist to support the church primarily in making disciples of all nations. Uh, there's a lot of things the church does. We don't do that. But what we do is we help the church in its desire to make disciples of all nations. And so that's kind of our focus is as the church is discipling its people from all over the world with the unique challenges and questions that they face today, including COVID, racial unrest, uh, all of these challenges, these timely challenges, how can we best support our leaders, our pastors, our church members um, as, as, they, as they grow in more Christ-likeness? So we support the church in making disciples of all, uh, all nations by providing gospel-centered resources. That's our, that's our key, right? That's, it's in our name. It's the beginning and end of who we are. We're about the gospel because we believe that the scriptures, inerrant and infallible in the Reformed tradition, has one primary message summed up in the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us on the cross and in his sinless life. So gospel-centered in all that we do, gospel-centered resources, what type of gospel-centered resources? And this is what we're hoping to do. Trusted and timely, winsome and wise. Let me just quickly explain. We want to continue the tradition of producing trusted resources. Trustworthiness in this day and age is so important. More than ever before, people have access to information on the internet more than ever before. More than the stars in the sky, we actually have bytes of information on the internet. But much of what we get on the internet, frankly, is just not trustworthy. And so as pastors and Christians from all over the world, and even seekers, those who are asking questions like, what is the Bible, which 1.8 million people ask every month, or who is Jesus? 1.5 million people ask that question every month. Guess which websites are the first ones that pop up? Latter-day Saints, Islam, Jehovah's Witness, Roman Catholicism. So TGC, thankfully, in religious websites that answer that question is in the top 20. We need more trusted websites to jump to number one, two, or three, so that as people who are searching for hope are looking for answers, they will have trustworthy resources that they can read. What is the Bible? Who is Jesus? Do I have hope in this life? Et cetera, et cetera. So trustworthy gospel-centered resources is what we want to produce. But we also want to produce timely resources. We also want to answer the questions people are asking now. And no matter how difficult that may be, and frankly, that actually gets us in trouble sometimes because we tackle subjects that some people just don't want to tackle. Now, again, we're going to try to do it to the best of our ability, but sometimes people on the right get upset, people on the left get upset. And, and as one, my editorial director told me, Colin Hansen, he said, you know what, if people on the right and on the left get mad, maybe you're doing the right thing. So we're trying to do that as well. While we're doing trustworthy resources, we also want to be timely and answer the questions, the concerns, the challenges that people have in their hearts and in their minds. And what could be more timely than in this COVID situation and racial unrest? It's hard. I'm sure you guys, as you guys are struggling as teachers in the seminary, teaching your pastors and even your alums who come to you, it's not easy, but we, we, we think that's our challenge. That's our, that's our calling, trusted and timely resources. We also want to be winsome. Um, it doesn't take long on the internet or even in conversation with people with whom you disagree in this cancel culture uh, to be counted out. And we don't want to be counted out because of the truth. Um, I mean, that is, we don't want to be counted out because of the way we speak. We want to be counted out because of what we speak, namely the truth. And so we want to continue to be charitable, winsome, gracious, loving, and speak the truth in that way. And that's something that we're going to continue to try to do with our, as we bring our gospel center resources out is being winsome in the, what, in what we do. And then lastly, we want to be wise. And what do I mean by that? We recognize that the Bible doesn't address every question in life. Uh, while the Bible and it's the inferences of scripture, as it says in our Westminster Confession, are helpful for all of life, we recognize that there's a lot of truth, a lot of God's truth found in the world. And so we want to wisely wrestle uh, by thinking about science and art and whatever and bring it to bear upon the questions that we face in our world. And so we also want to, we want to tackle uh, the questions wisely, utilizing all the resources, right? We call it the two books, right? The book of scripture and the book of nature and to figure out ways to help our churches disciple their people to be more like Jesus. And so that's part of our goal 
And it seems like we're, in terms of our growth, in terms of our numbers online, we're, we're going to have, we're going to be larger and bigger than ever before this year, because I think people are looking, they're searching, they're seeking, they're looking for hope. And that's what we want to do is we want to produce, we want to produce resources that give them, give them that hope. That's such an important mission. And I love the way that that's articulated, trusted and timely, winsome and wise, Julius. You know, as I'm thinking about you coming out of a seminary context, and even still in, in the upcoming year, having uh, you know, a foot still at, at Westminster and teaching a bit, how do you think about, because there's a lot of overlap, I would think, in what the work of a seminary is and what the work of an organization like Gospel Coalition is. And, and, and the, 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 there's a Venn diagram. These would overlap significantly. I'm interested in, in how are they similar and what are you noticing are some of the major differences? And that's kind of the beginning. And I guess the follow-up is going to be, how do seminaries work well with an organization like the Gospel Coalition so that we can augment each other in our mission? Yeah, that's a great question. Let me preface this by saying my, my thoughts is going to, it comes from my own experience at Westminster, California. And I'm not as familiar with RTS or other seminaries. Obviously, I have tremendous respect for RTS. Uh, I think your boss is also my boss. Ligon Duncan is on my board. <laughs> and so tremendously thankful for Ligon's ministry. And, and, and another boss, my chairman of the board is Kevin DeYoung, who's also a professor at one of your campuses. And, and I have obviously many friends. And so while I have a lot of uh, respect for RTS, I just don't know your system as well. So sure. please, my disclaimer is that my, my, my thoughts come from my own experience of 20 years at the seminary. Um, much overlap, I think, much overlap in terms of what I would say, at least for those seminaries in the Reformed tradition, one of the great things that I appreciate is that we focus on the majors and not on the minors. And it's the emphasis on teaching what Machen called, sorry, there's a Westminster guy, but what Machen called producing specialists in the Bible, right? And I think all of you would agree that that's one of our goals, mm. is that rather than just giving rules for ministry, we can do that. We can talk about when you're a youth pastor, here are seven rules to follow. Or when you do missions, here are five rules to follow. What we want to give them is we want to give them a more, we want to give them more tools, right. exegetical tools, theological tools, ministerial tools that they can apply across the board to various situations and not just in their ministry, but even in their own life. And the best tool we can give them, of course, is the tools that you're teaching, exegetical skills, theological skills, et cetera. And so I think for us at TGC, we continue to follow in that same tradition, that Reformation tradition of placing our ma placing, putting majors on the majors, right? On the scriptures, what flows out of the scriptures, good theology, what flows out of exegesis and good theology is good ethics. And so I think there's a lot of overlap there. I think one area I think that might differ is the vehicle in which we give information, right? Most of your although that's changed this year with COVID and Zoom. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, for the most part, theological education is still done face-to-face. -face. And that's very important, I think, especially in the formation of future pastors and leaders. I think face-to-face -face education still is best. We do that with our own children. Uh, we, we raise and disciple our own children. We raise and disciple our own children in the faith in the church. And so I do think there's something to be said about face-to-face -face education as you're forming and not just giving information, about the Old and New Testament, systematic theology, whatever, and historical theology. But you're forming them as you're teaching them. Right. And I think this is where seminaries, I think, are just, you know, they do something that a lot of other graduate schools just don't do, which I think is profound. Hmm. For us at TGC, we don't even have a building. We're, we have no brick and mortar. And so we basically live on the internet. And so for us transitioning, there was no, no transition for us after COVID because we were already in that Zoom world in the internet world. But one of the things that I, I think I mentioned before that I think seminaries might want to think more carefully about is more and more Christian discipleship is happening online, mm -hmm. whether we like it or not. Right. Even in my own church, we've got younger generations looking for answers, solutions to their problems online and not, they don't call their pastor. They don't email their, they don't write a letter to their pastor. For example, they go online and they Google, and so to me, and this is something that we've been talking about at TGC is Google has become the new spiritual battleground oh. and, and more and more people, we're going to be fighting for lack, for lack of better words in the church. And I think in the seminary 
for competing voices as to what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. And I think seminaries may need to pivot and think carefully about how they transfer their information and transfer formation of future pastors in this digital age where the battleground is not on the streets or in the street corner, but the battleground is now on the, on the search bar. And so in light of that, I think that's something that seminaries need to pivot in terms of where discipleship is taking place. It's becoming more digital. So yeah, those are just some immediate thoughts, Scott, but. That's great. Now, are there, are there opportunities? Is, is TGC thinking about opportunities of engaging with seminaries or, or organizations of ed, you know, theological education and formation in this way? Since you all absolutely. are doing so well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. No, really. yeah. yeah, absolutely. In fact, this is, again, the beauty of TGC is that mm-hmm. TGC is a coalition of like-minded pastors and churches. Yeah. And if I can add to that, like-minded pastors and professors, let's add another, right? You guys are specialists at what you do. We would be foolish not to tap into the pool of specialists who do this. And then what we do is we bring our specialty is, 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 is getting your, your, inf- your, what you are so good at and transition or transferring it, translating it, whatever we want to call it into the digital platform and whatever that looks like. And then, and then open up, open up what you do to a larger constituency. Like we have access to 40 million people online. I'm, I'm assuming of the wow. 40 million, we can probably get some students for RTS for your virtual world right. or et cetera. We'll take them. Okay. <laughs> so absolutely. I think yeah. that, that it, it would go without saying that we would be fools not to look into ways to partner together for the sake of, of forming future leaders. And that's really our heart too. Our, the, our mm-hmm. primary audience are pastors. We want, to, we want to train pastors who are going into ministry or who are even in ministry. Renew their faith and reform their ministry according to the scripture and according to the gospel. So uh, if we can partner with like-minded institutions like RTS, that would be fantastic. Hey, Julius, thanks again for being here. Um, you know, on a personal note, your preaching book has been very helpful. I'm writing a little something I'm preaching, and so appreciate that. Um, Julius, I had a personal question I wanted to ask. Uh, you shared something that I thought was, I mean, sh- two things really stuck out. You, you were at uh, Westminster for 20 years, and then you said your daughters are walking the faith, which is... And that's that's also, mm. um, but having been now in ministry for twenty years, you've probably seen some pastors, professors. You know, mm. um, hopefully they'll come back. And when you look back, granted the grace of God that keeps us where we are, but would you say that there were certain things, experiences that either helped you stay the course, you know, because the long discipleship or maybe certain common denominators among those that might have um, strayed. And, you know, even though many of our students listen to us, we're, everyone on this podcast, we're not where you are in terms of maybe that 20 years. Actually, Peter, I don't know, but I don't know how long you've been teaching, but it's been a long time. But is there anything you've noticed in terms of that was helpful for you to stay the course? or certain things that you noticed that was common among pastors and maybe even professors that have strayed from the gospel? Mm. That's a great question, Paul. Um, let me begin by saying, you know, COVID has just, has brought a lot of things to the surface from my own heart, from the recesses of my own heart that I didn't think I would be thinking about. You know, I think this is one of the first times in my life, if I can just be vulnerable, that I really felt for a lack of better words, depressed. You know, I didn't know quite how to even explain it. It was just like this uneasy feeling of just not, not being right. And it's just, I think it was just a combination of being stuck at home in quarantine and, and the transitions that I went through and just uneasiness about our world, about the pandemic, racial unrest, uh, as, as a bicultural Korean American, just thinking through all those issues. And it, it was one of these times when I, I realized how important for me several things were to help me not just survive this year, but thrive for the long haul. And I think this is a, this has been important to me as one is regular rhythms of spirituality, right? Of regular rhythms, whatever that looks like for pastors or leaders of walking with the Lord 
And that's one of the things I learned from Dr. Clowney and other spiritual men like my father is they were so committed to the rhythm of spirituality and devotion and piety, to the rhythm of piety. And I, frankly, I think in my pride, I took that for granted. I thought, come on, I'm a pastor, I'm a professor, I'm, I'm pretty good, right? And it takes, I think, crises in our lives to awaken us to the, the, the fragility uh, of our own hearts, right? The sin of our own hearts and the fragility of our life. And uh, so that's one of the things that I've been really wrestling with. And, and my wife has been incredibly helpful is just finding regular rhythms of piety and devotion to the Lord, however that looks. And obviously that looks like being in the word and prayer. Secondly, I would say the importance of spiritual friendships. Um, and I think for men, this is more needed than ever before, especially for men that tend to be very proud, um, especially in this kind of rugged individualistic world in which we live that we pull ourselves by our bootstraps and we go get it, right? Manifest destiny, right? Et cetera. And I think we have to admit that we're weak and we need one another. And especially pastors uh, who often are so alone in their ministries and in their walk, because oftentimes they can't even talk to their own elders because they're afraid that they might lose their jobs. So who do they talk to? They have to find spiritual friends, safe places where they can talk about, man, I feel really weird. I don't even want to preach this Sunday. How can I even go up to the pulpit, et cetera, et cetera. Or I'm really struggling in this area, guys. Can you help me? And so I've been actually on a Zoom call every Monday night with a group of friends. And that's all we do. We just talk. We just share. How's it going over where you are? And these are, these are friends from all over the world. And we just get on the Zoom call and we just talk, and remind each other of the gospel and, and just be honest. And it's been so life-giving. I didn't realize at 52 years of age that I would need friends so much. But that's one thing that has really helped me, not only this year, but for the last several you know, decades of ministry. I'm part of a covenant group with three other guys and the four of us. Uh, regularly meet up once a month to pray and to talk. And, and that's been incredibly helpful for me. And so I think, I think for a lot of your students, young, especially young ministers or ministers to be, even now at the semin at seminary, one of the greatest things they can do is find two or three friends that they can start this rhythm of praying together, sharing together, bearing one another's burden at seminary. And then when they go off to the world to do ministry, they still have that friendship and they'll continue to talk and hold each other accountable. Because ministry is hard. You guys know. Um, I'm sure if I asked one, every one of you, you would, you would be able to share the challenges of ministry and ministerial life, which, which, which includes being a professor. And um, we, need, we need good regular rhythms of piety, and we need spiritual friendships. Um, then let me ask, add, add one more thing. You know, I've done actually some research on why pastors burn out. Uh, in ministry. And one of the biggest reasons why pastors burn out in ministry is because the inability to resolve conflict and talk about conflict right now, right? You don't need, you, you don't need to look very far into Twitter or to Instagram or to Facebook, Facebook to see all the conflict, even among Christians, even, even in my own church, there's so much conflict right now because of politics, right? Just crazy. And I think we need to be, we need to be sensible, realistic, but also we need to train ourselves in the art of peacemaking. And I think that's an area where pastors have neglected in terms of training themselves in, in reconciliation, in gospel reconciliation, and whether it's with marriage and family, with kids, but also in other areas. And I, so I just want to commend uh, to, to those who are listening, especially students, take the time now to learn how to do gospel reconciliation. Pick up Ken Sandy's book, you know, the peacemaker that's been around for years and, and learn what it means to be a peacemaker. So just some, just, just some thoughts, Paul, I don't know if that resonates with you, oh, but uh, thank you so much. Yeah. Really. Thanks a, whole, a lot to us. It's great. There's a whole podcast just there. We should have Julius back. I think. <laughs> the, uh, the need for reconciliation. I mean, Julius, you, you really hit the nail on the head. I, I have never seen the world as divided and at odds with one another as, as we've been seeing it largely during this COVID season, which uh, has been so damaging and destructive. Old friendships have been for decades long that have been severed now because of, uh, because of some of the issues. Um, 
you know, this is worse than the Murray Klein debates that we had, that we had in seminary way back in, in the day, if you remember. And, and that's saying something. The, uh, it's not so. <laughs> the, um, you know, a, a lot of the race tensions, as you know, has been at the, at the heart of a lot of these, uh, a lot of these di uh, dialogues and, and uh, it's been very well established within the media, just some of the horrors and real tragedies that's been going out there. Julius, you know, you're, you're a godly man. You, you are in a position of leadership, and, and I'm sure many people have come to you with, with uh, some questions about this. So I guess I'd like to know, how would you say we bring a sense of unity here in, amongst mm -hmm. so much division? It is so, I mean, you know, I, I have no doubt it's happening there in San Diego and Southern California. We're in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Uh, we see it right out on our streets. Um, uh, even just the, uh, the Republican National Party just had their uh, uh, re-public uh, nomination of Donald Trump. And, and that was uh, a circus out here uh, as well. And so what can we do? What, what, uh, and I guess yeah. maybe in two parts here, or maybe three parts, what can we do as a seminary? What can we do as a church? And then, of course, for you, perhaps more practically, what about TGC? What, what, have, what have they been doing and what would you like to see happen here uh, to bring some, some resolution? And we, we hold the gospel, as you said, and the gospel really is the only solution here in a real broad sense. But um, uh, what, what can we do here? Yeah, Peter, that's a great question. It's a very difficult question. And, and I, again, another, I need to begin with another disclaimer. And no way can I answer a question like that uh, in all of its complexity. And, and uh, it's just hard. But uh, maybe I can talk about it this way. Even in my own church, you know, I've been, at, I've been an associate pastor in my local PCA church here for almost 20 years, 19 years. And, you know, we have people in my church, and I don't know if they're going to listen to this or not, but I hope they understand when I say this. You know, I've known them for 20, for 19 years, and because of the current period, I think this is just so much piling on top of each other from COVID, all the stress of that, then to the political debates, to racial unrest. It's just piling on top of one another, and I think our relationship of 19 years seems to be on a thread, and it's it's incredibly sad. It's heart wrenching uh, for me personally, and for many of our elders and. So one of the things that we've tried to do is this, Peter. We've determined that, that this too shall pass, this season shall pass. And it feels like a very cold, wet, icy winter that just doesn't seem to go away. And, and I it's hard for me to say that from San Diego, but for those of you in the East Coast, uh, perhaps you can tell me what that feels like. But uh, from my experience in Chicago, I know kind of a little bit what that's like. And when it's, when it's sunny outside in April, but it's still freezing outside, I just never understood that. And so it's like a long winter, but this too shall pass. And in the midst of this long winter, what are we called to do? Uh, is, to, is one, to stay the course. And, and like you said, Peter, is we're going to continue to allow the gospel not only to frame how we think, but also be the foundation of what we say. And so we want to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. It's, very, it's so easy to become angry at many of our, how shall we say, the members of our church that act like spiritual teenagers, right? So they're old enough to know enough information, but they're not wise enough to do the right thing. So they're like really, they're like spiritual teenagers that God has entrusted to you. And we're not going to throw away our teenagers. I know we feel like we should sometimes, but we're going to stay the course and we're going to continue to disciple them through the process while they're being ornery and mean and surly like teenagers, only teenagers can be, right? And so a lot of our church members are just going to be that way. They're surly, ornery, and mean. And I'm going to say, we're going to continue to love you, but we're going to continue to speak gospel truth to you. And we're going to listen to you, and we're going to try to understand you and where you're coming from, not just the presenting issue that you say, but what's the deeper issue? Why are you so fearful about this? What, is, what scares you about this or that? Um, what is it about us making you wear masks or not wearing masks, whatever it may be. What is it that's causing this? So just, just staying the course um, and, and continuing to disciple them as they're in process, I think is really, really important. And, um, and then in terms of the racial divide, that's such a big question, Peter. I think one of the things that we've learned at TGC is as a lot of pastors and churches are, are contacting us for resources and for help, We've been teach we're actually going to start producing more materials and resources, but 
one of the things that we've been teaching them is you have to get into to relational um, discussions with pastors in your community. Is find pastors in your community, especially African-American pastors. And even though they're not in the same denomination, become friends and then listen and learn. Listen and learn from like-minded brothers who are struggling with this in a different way. And, and just listen and learn. And then as you listen and learn from them, as well as other sources, read books, read some articles, as you listen and learn, then you have to learn how to love and then leverage your position as a leader to then disciple your people in the, in the truth. And so that's kind of how we've been approaching. What we want to do is create listening communities, learning communities, loving communities and leveraging communities. And so that's one of the things that we're trying to do at TGC is produce resources in those areas uh, for multiple, multiple communities, not only communities that are largely, let's say white American, but even black Americans, you know, we have, we have African-American pastors on our council that basically say, Julius, the resources that you're producing doesn't really, it's not really helping us in the black church. Uh, we don't need a history lesson on, on Jim Crow, et cetera. What do we do in the black church? And so we're getting together a, a group of African-American pastors in our community, in the TGC community, and figuring out what are resources that we can uniquely provide for the African-American church community. And that's what, another thing we're trying to do. And so, so yeah, a lot of challenges, um, a lot of, but a lot of opportunities too, Peter. I think for us, this, this time is a great time for the gospel to shine in the midst of all this darkness but we got to do it lovingly and winsomely. Amen. I totally agree. And uh, I think in Ken Sandy's book, he does mention that, um, you know, sin it can be seen as an opportunity, exactly how you were describing an opportunity for the glory of God to, uh, to, to shine through as we see the hope of the, the, the redemptive message of the gospel now transform those sins and redeem it and instill in us that sense of hope. Praise God for that. Absolutely. You use that phrase, listen and learn, and I think that's so important. And I'm thinking about our students, and, and a lot of our students listen to this podcast, Julius. And is there, is there anything you would say in particular for those who are going out into ministry? They're going to finish an MDiv in the next year or two. And like you said, the, the, some of the passions of this current moment may fade, but the issues are going to still be there. What would you say to young soon to graduate seminarians who feel called to be ministers of word and sacrament in Christ church. What would you say to them as to how to, in addition to listening and learning, is there any other words of wisdom that you would offer them? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks God. You know, I think one of the things that I learned in my 20 years at the seminary is that I have no doubt that as a result of doing their education at RTS, Washington, DC, or a place like Western California, they're gonna get a lot of wonderful tools from ministry, a lot of actionable tools, right? Things that they can now, they have a large tool belt and they're gonna, okay, now I'm ready to go. I'm gonna change the world. And I, and I think one of the things that they forget is that if their heart isn't right, if their character hasn't been formed, no matter how competent they may be, it's gonna be really hard. And, and we know this because in the first five years of ministry, more pastors quit than in any other time. And so how do we help these young guys right out of seminary, survive the first five years, get to that seven-year itch and say, I love what I do, even though it's hard, I'm going to continue to do this, is, is develop the kind of formational patterns of life that will get them through, those things that really develop character. And so what I would say is one of the first things you have to do going out is don't worry about your sermon series, don't worry about what Bible study you're gonna teach, is getting yourself into personal and interpersonal uh, devotional life, a devotional life. And like getting the spiritual friendships on the one hand and developing your personal life. And, and, right. I, and Peter knows, I, I'm not very pious. He keeps on saying that I'm very godly. And I'm, my wife will tell you, my children will tell you, I'm not very pious. But, but one of the things that I've learned is that my goodness, if it wasn't for even my minimal level of piety, I would have died a long time ago. Hmm. I would have quit a long time ago. And I, I've, I've been tempted to quit a lot, a lot of times hmm. or fall or fall into temptation or, or give up in the midst of trials. And so I think that's really good. And then another thing that I would say is this, is 
just because you have your, your master of divinity, right? These are all masters of divinity or masters of art. <laughs> um, you haven't mastered uh, what it means to be a child of God mm. and how to use what God has given to you in ministry. And so just remaining humble and teachable is so critical and to be a lifelong learner. Um, I think that's going to be critical. And so what that, that's is in addition to getting into regular patterns of piety is, is getting into rhythms of professional development is what are you going to do over the next three to five years to grow personally, spiritually, theologically, exegetically. Uh, they have to get into a rhythm of just being humble, diligent to keep learning and keep growing um, keep reading. Reading a lot is important and reading the right stuff and brought, read widely and deeply. Uh, because I know, I don't know if, about your students, but my students complain all the time is they just don't have time to read. They barely read to get, get through the class, but they're not really soaking it in. And so just, just reading deeply and widely is really important. I think. Yeah. So, just, uh, we, some, just some thoughts. That's great. Thank you for that. No, we, we talk a lot about how this is the beginning of your, of your journey as a pastor. Don't, don't think that when you get that sheet of paper, you're, you're at the end of the journey, right? This is yeah. just the beginning of the preparation. Julius, if I can ask one more question, I'm sorry, I don't mean to monopolize, but this conversation has been really great. And, you know, I think rightly so you've focused a lot on character and, and so forth. I have heard this question asked to older pastors, including Tim Keller, David Pallison, and so forth. And I'm curious to know how you would answer it. Um, and it sort of relates to even before how you indicated many pastors um, burn out because of an inability to reconcile and so forth. Do you think any of that is just related to pastors being placed in functional roles that they haven't been trained for, like, for instance, leading teams, right? And mm -hmm. so I've, I've heard older pastors say things like, well, getting an MBA or having a job in the real world, things like that are helpful. When you look back in ministry, do you think that other experiences or education would have enhanced um, your ministry? Um, is that question making sense, Julius? It does. Yeah, it actually, is, yeah. it makes a lot of sense, Paul. And so that's actually a very important question. A question that I've, especially in the practical theology department, we've been asking uh, for 20 years is, are we doing enough to prepare our ministers for the various challenges they face uh, in ministry? And one of the biggest challenges they face is how do you lead and manage teams or a staff or elders or people in the church? And, and, um, and unfortunately, in our curriculum, I don't know about RTS, is, you know, as it is, we, we force our MDiv students to do over 100 hours uh, of, of classes. And so for us to try to, in, 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 what is that, add yet another class on leadership and management is so difficult. And yet we've discovered over the years, talking to alums, and even from our own experiences as professors and as pastors in the church, how challenging that aspect of relational politics, right? So not politics isn't always a bad word, if you think about it. Politics is how to manage well, how to manage wisely all the relationships that come your way. And in the church, all the relationships are not answered by the Westminster Shorter Catechism, unfortunately. While the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Catechism is extremely helpful, it doesn't help me understand the dynamics, let's say, when you're going through a, a building campaign to build a new Sunday school wing, and you've got elders and deacons at each other's throats as to how to spend the money. And as a the pastor, they're, called, they're looking to you to manage this crisis. And that's, that's, that's politics. And so how do you manage those things? And unfortunately, as many of you know, these, these, these are areas of wisdom that sometimes a seminary class cannot by itself teach. Yet nonetheless, in addition to ex life experience, in addition to internships that cover these kinds of areas, intentional internships where older pastors and elders teach younger men in these areas. I think there has to be some sort of way, even at the seminary level, to introduce students to, the, to, the, to areas of leadership and management and how to, how to manage it wisely. And there's just so much wisdom out there. And I think it behooves us to help our, our students in that way. If I could... Uh, ask a kind of piggyback question on that. So the you've got the 
like the business and management and leadership side of things, but there's also, I, I love how you put it, the, the relational politics side of things. I guess going into ministry, I thought the big issues are going to be, that people were going to be mad about were like theological issues. And then I realized, no, it's usually the nursery. And <laughs> like when I schedule the youth group, like that's the issue. And managing those things kind of requires just a level of personal, relational savvy. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where can students go? Uh, you know, you know it's, it's hard to recommend a book on relational savvy, but how, how do, how would you yeah. recommend students kind of pick up those skills? Should they lack them? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think one of the places to start is in the area of emotional intelligence. I don't know how many of you are familiar with um, one of the seminal authors in that area is Daniel Goleman, who wrote, I don't even remember 15, 20 years ago, and many people who followed in that train of, of yeah. learning what we call EQ, right? Emotional quotient. And so many of us, I think, in the seminary focus our pedagogy on IQ, intelligence quotients, getting more information. But I think one of the things we have to do is, is to supplement what we're doing in terms of raising our students' IQ is also to help raising their EQ, their emotional quotient. And, and I think one way to do that is by learning from the wisdom of others who, who talk about that, even from the secular world. Uh, especially in the area of emotional intelligence. Uh, we talked about Ken Sandy before. Let me mention what he does now. He actually runs a ministry called Relational Wisdom 360. And he basically says that Peacemaker was designed to help people after they get into a conflict. He said, what I want to do is go upstream from conflict and think of, and then try to anticipate where conflict begins and teach people the wisdom to not even get into the conflict, relational wisdom. And so, so what he's doing is he's actually, he's translating much of the work of emotional intelligence into Christian relationships and Christian management. And so I, there, there are a lot of books out there. Um, the Leadership Network that's based out of, I think, Dallas does a lot of that kind of work. And again, there's, you don't have to take everything that they say, but there's a lot of insight there that I've learned over the years uh, from those from those scholars, that's terrific. I actually make uh, when I was when I was a real pastor, Julius. You know, I I made uh, all of my uh, elder uh, candidates or trainees, so to speak, officer trainees, read uh, uh, Ken Sandy's book. Uh, it was one of the few ones that I actually said you've got to read this. It's a must thing, and and I think you're totally right. Uh, hey, you know, I think Gray had a question that he didn't get just asked. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's all right. It's all good. I thought you were. I thought you were handing it off, Gray, and saying that you you were okay not to. Yeah, yeah. I love I love listening to everything. My question was more like, you know, for for those, especially when I was in seminary and knowing folks in the reform world, you know, talking about emotional EQ, uh, reconciliation, peacemaking, and things like that. Like, I love that. I think that's so important for ministry and for pastoral ministry, especially. But I think a lot of folks, especially in seminary or even until now, there are a lot of there are a lot of folks who are just suspicious of that. They're just saying, well, no, to be a faithful pastor, you just need theology. You just need Bible. You just need your confessions. So what, what would you say to that? That was kind of my question. But my, my temptation to say to that is just wait, wait till you get to ministry. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. You'll see for yourself. Yeah. But I'm just curious that, what you would say. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, that's usually what I do say. It's just, just, just wait. <laughs> uh, good and know. I say, I, I think in, like a lot of life, it doesn't have to be an either or, but it's a both and. And if you've been married for any period of time, you know that negotiating with your wife is never an either or, it's always a both and. When you start having children, trying to raise them is always a both and, never an either or. Ministry is never an either or, it's always a both and. And so while the priority is always going to be how our understanding of scriptures and theology uh, speak to this particular issue, always, we don't, we don't want to underestimate the wisdom that comes from knowing um, subjects like emotional intelligence, a relational wisdom, peacemaking principles, etc. Because if done rightly, these are just extensions, right? Extensions mm-hmm. of our ethics. And so our ethics ultimately are going to be grounded in scripture based on theology, but ultimately practiced in a way that's wise. And so I, I think there's a way to try to convince students just from their own personal experiences of trying to negotiate the difficulties of marriage and children and life that you're actually doing this already. Uh, don't, don't compartmentalize seminary and ministry in such a way that it's just so holy. This kind of sacred secular distinction. There's no such thing. 
ministry, life, everything. There's no, there's no distinction here. There's this false bifurcation, right? Of the sacred and the secular. And so I, I think we, if we're going to be truly reformed in the reformation tradition, we don't separate those two, mm. uh, but we wisely try to figure out how to bring those worlds together while prioritizing, of course, scripture and theology and our confession. Um, so that's kind of how I try to answer it with my students who will ask me the same question. Amen. That's so good. Yeah. You save yourself the years of heartache to learn that lesson and go ahead and prepare for it right now. <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, uh, the gospel coalition has their annual conference. Uh, the big one that's usually in April. I don't know if this is the, uh, this coming April is a conference year or not. Uh, and it's always been challenging for me to be able to go to that, just taking time off from, uh, you know, the seminary and taking time away from classes that I just, I can't, I can't do, which is why I, I haven't been able to go. Do you, is there ever uh, going to have something where you may have more local regional uh, conferences for, uh, for people like myself, perhaps who may not be able to take time to go to the, to the natural thing, or I guess local resources, what that, what would that might be? Yeah, thank you. Yes, we, the national, actually, we actually have two national conferences next April, Lord willing. A lot of it's still not, not we're not still not sure if it will happen because of COVID and, and et cetera. But um, our, our national women's conference was to, was to take place this June, but we postponed it to next April because of COVID. And, uh, and then the national conference will take place actually right afterwards. And so the women's conference will take place April 9 through 11. Friday through Sunday, and then the national conference will be uh, April 12th through 14, uh, Monday through Wednesday. Um, and um, I would love for you uh, to join us one of these days, Peter. I'll talk to your boss and see if we can get those days off for you. But one of the things we have been, have been thinking about are regional conferences, actually, Peter. Um, and not only just regional conferences, but regional conferences tailored for pastoral leaders, uh, smaller cohorts, where we bring together more, many of the council members to not only teach, but to start what we we're, we're going, we want to start pastoral cohorts is utilizing the resources that we have TGC to train and help pastors all over the country. So we have 21 regional chapters and that's growing here in the United States, but we have regional networks of pastors all over the country. We have 12 international coalitions and we're trying to figure out how do we maximize and leverage the pastors in 21 areas of the country 12 countries, et cetera, um, for the sake of making disciples of all nations. And so, um, so we're, we're thinking about that, Peter, or hopefully one of these days we will have a regional conference, possibly even a pastor's conference where it's limited to only four or 500 pastors to keep it smaller, more intimate for mentoring opportunities, not just teaching. Sounds so good. the short answer is yes, but not sure when. That's wonderful. I love the idea of, the regional conference. And yes, we'll give Peter Lee some days off. We will unlock his doors so that he can leave the seminary campus for a few days. I'll go to um, the one in Southern California so I can get my in and out burger. Uh -huh, yeah, that's, there, there's ulterior motives here, Julius. You can always, <laughs> you can always zoom your teaching from in and out burger. <laughs> I, I'm willing to do that. I can, I definitely am willing to do that. <laughs> Well, Dr. Kim, it has been wonderful to have you on uh, this episode and to just glean from your wisdom and hear some of the exciting things that are going on at the Gospel Coalition and how we can be a part of it. I can just tell you already this, this faculty has benefited from it. I know as a professor and as a president, um, folks on this faculty have published with Gospel Coalition, um, and I have found myself pointing students sometimes to uh, the offerings on the website as well not only in, in seminary classes, but in Bible studies. It's so great to have that space where you can find trusted resources and we can point students and other followers of Christ there. So thank you so much for that work. We're excited to hear about your vision there. And thanks for your time with us uh, this evening. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Many blessings to you and to all of you and your important work there at the seminary. I'll be praying for you. Thank you, Julius. And for everyone else, we will see you again next week. Until then, take care.
a little surprised that you mentioned your bachelor party after all these years, but I think that's the last time I will mention it at this point. I think that's well, what we want to hear from first. Yeah, let's yeah. focus on that. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, it's traumatic. Uh, it just seeing Julius for some reason, not only that, uh, but do you remember the, the chocolate raspberry coffees and, and, and all of that? I mean, anyhow, it was just a, it's just a lot of fun to be able to reminisce with old friends and to see the Lord just really bless uh, uh, your life and, the, what, and what you have done. It's just uh, been so encouraging to see from a distance. That's very kind. Thank you, Peter. Well, that, you know, we're friends, so that's what we, that's what we do. You can, you can <laughs> edit that out. You know. 